The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're glad that you stayed with us this hour because we're going to have a special guest, and she's on the line. Nicole Evelina is an author of an upcoming book on Virginia Minor, who we just kind of previously gave a little background on. She's a USA Today best-selling author of historical f- fiction and nonfiction, women's fiction, whose six books have won more than 40 awards, including Book of the Year designations. She was named Missouri's top independent author by Library Journal and Biblio Board as the winner of the Missouri Indie Author Project in 2018 and has been awarded the North Street Book Prize and the Sartan Woman's Book Award. One of her books, Madam Presidentess, was previously optioned for her for a film. Nicole, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, you know, I was looking at your website, which, by the way, folks, is Nicole Evelina, N-I-C-O-L-E-E-V-E-L-I-N-A.com. You have got a boatload of awards in your in your closet there, I'm sure, or displayed wherever you are. They're in a trophy case. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, holy smokes. And of, of all of those, I, I'm kind of curious, of all of those awards, and I'm not trying to put one above the other because they all have their different purposes and they all have different focus, is there one that means more to you than the others in some way? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it would probably be a tie between the Missouri Indie Author Award and any one of the uh, Book of the Year designations, because, I mean, to be named Book of the Year by any organization is absolutely mind-blowing and a a complete honor. Um, The Missouri Indie Author Award is, as an an independent author, um, it's amazing recognition that people who publish on their own can have high-quality books um, as good, if not better, than um, traditionally published books. So I was extremely honored and completely surprised um, when that one happened. And that book of the year was for which one? Um, actually, four of my books have won book of the year. Daughter of Destiny, which was my debut novel. Its sequel, Camelot's Queen, the third book in the series, um, Mistress of Legend, and then my nonfiction book, on Guinevere, which is called um, The Once and Future Queen, Guinevere in Arthurian Legend. All, all four of those, one different book of the year designations. Now, I find it interesting, because uh, this is just my observation, and maybe it's, it's off, and Mark would probably agree that I'm off, uh, so my observations are off, but <laughs> n- normally an author kind of writes in one uh-huh. genre, and you write in historical fiction slash fantasy, nonfiction, and women's mm-hmm. fiction. So yes. I, I, I guess, do you have like a, a bent or a lean towards one or the other? Not really. For me, it's the stories themselves. And the thing that ties them together is that they're all about strong women, and mostly women that you haven't heard of. Or I'm telling a perspective that hasn't been very commonly told. So, for example, with my Guinevere books, 
throughout the history of Arthurian legend, you've heard it from King Arthur's point of view, you've heard it from Merlin's point of view, and there have been other books uh, about Guinevere, but um, I wanted to tell the entire, her entire life from her perspective. Um, as far as historical fiction goes, straight historical, I want to talk about women who should be in the history books but aren't. Um, I've written about Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman who ran for president in the United States back in 1872. Um, chances are good that she and Virginia Minor actually knew each other. Um, I'm willing to bet they probably didn't like each other very much because they had very different personalities <laughs> and uh, outlooks on the world. But, um, you know, I, I feel like we've had all of this time where so many marginalized stories were taken out of our history, um, and not just women, uh, people of color, any, any group that wasn't considered desirable, and it's time to get those stories back out there. So regardless of the genre or the time period that I write in, um, I want to tell those stories because I feel like it's important for women to have role models to look up to. So I, this, this next question that I'm going to ask you, Nicole, deals with your how, how you set up a book, and, and you're, you're still working, and as uh, I think I mm -hmm. remember that you mentioned you have three chapters left that you think for the Virginia Minor book, how do you go about, mm -hmm. help people understand, how do you go about the process of, of writing and, and scoping it out and your research and things like that to help people understand that you just don't sit down at the uh, <laughs> word processor and start cranking things out and looking things up on, on Google? Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty involved process. Uh, for me, for historical fiction, it'll normally take me about six months to do my research. Um, and that's really because I don't have to be as exacting and really specific as you have to be in nonfiction, because in historical fiction, you can make things up. You can fudge things if you need to. Um, you're definitely well advised to explain when you do that in the back of the book. But um, for the biography, it's taken me about three years. Um, I know some biographers can spend much, much more t longer time on researching their subjects. Um, I have a very limited amount of material that is available about the minors. If I was writing about somebody more famous, like let's say President Grant, um, I can totally see where it could take a dozen years to do the research. But in either case, for me, it is the research that gives me the bones of the story. Um, I tend toward biographical historical fiction, which is similar to writing a biography, only that not all of it has to be true. Um, I tend to do a cradle-to-grave type story. So, I mean, in that way, the outline is already there. But I basically just start by noting down, you know, what all is available, what are my resources, you know, what what archives hold material. Um, and then I go through and just learn as much as I can. I usually will start with shorter profiles just to get a basic idea of who the person is and the areas that um, I might need to focus on. And then from there, you know, depending on when things are available, um, where, when I can travel, um, I would go do the in-person research uh, because that tends to be more in-depth. Excuse me. And then after that, when I have a pretty solid feel for what information is available and the things that I should focus on, I pretty much know with the order of my chapters. So then I go through and go point by point. Okay, you, I know this about the, like this person went to this school. What can I learn about the time period in which they were at school? And get, then I get into the really detailed research. So, I mean, I have about 200 pages worth of notes 
for this biography. Um, my outline is something like 50 pages long. Wow. So, you know, before I even start writing, I have a substantial amount of material, which makes the writing process easier. How do you decide what you're not going to put in? Because sometimes you can have an overabundance of material. And yeah. and what what makes you uh, say, okay, I need to include that, or, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that? Uh, a lot of times you'll find things will end up being repetitive that you don't realize at the time when you're taking notes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, you only need to say something once. There are things that it's like... You come and you look at them, and, and at first you thought, oh, that might be a cool little detail to include, and then you're like, that's not really relevant to what I'm saying. So you, you really have to focus on what is the point, A, of the overall book, and then B, of each chapter, and, and think about, does it advance the plot forward? I mean, it's, even though it's a nonfiction book, there's still a plot to it. Um, in a biography, it's the, the, the different beats, the different events in the person's life. Um, and if it doesn't, then it might be something cool to put on your website or to blog about. I mean, there's always a way to get the information out there. Um, it, it, it's very interesting that nonfiction has a pacing just like fiction does. And you need to stop and think when you're reading through it. And this may be on a, a second, third, fourth, fifth draft, draft where you're realizing you're starting to bog the story down, and that's a place where you might lose your reader, which is something you don't want to do, because the second they have the opportunity to put the book down, they may not pick it back up again. So you have to really be hard with yourself. There's, there's a phrase in the publishing industry that's called killing your darlings, and cut that stuff out, even if you really think it's cool. Um, you know, there's a, there's a little detail that I'm hoping will stay in um, one of these last chapters about Virginia. She actually had a parrot that she trained to um, every morning when she would go out the door say to her, well, Mrs. Minor, will we vote today? And, you know, <laughs> it's a cute story, and I'm hoping it will get at the point of how dedicated she was. But when I get uh-huh. to that point, it might just be like, yeah, that's nice to know, you know, and may not make it. Yeah, you, and how many of those things fall by uh, at the editor's desk, or do you have an editor, or do you have other people that read and say, hey, I would modify this, or this just doesn't seem to work? How do you go about the editing process, having other people view that? Yeah, it's definitely a multi-stage process. Um, I usually have a group of beta readers um, who are just people that I trust. They're my friends. They're other writers um, who will read the book first and give me notes. Um, my agent will look at them. And um, I, then once we, once we have a contract, which this, this book currently is not under contract, but we have uh, interest from several different publishers, um, then when the editor will make the biggest decisions of what stays and what goes. And, you know, that's a, that's a negotiation process. And, um, you know, but in the end, it's, it's for the good of the book. I mean, you're, you're really aiming to produce the best possible product that will keep your readers engaged. Now, now, how important are historical photographs or images to support the story? Uh, how important are those in a book that you would write? You know, I think that would depend on the publisher's preference. Um, I think it would be really nice to have at least a few. I mean, if absolutely nothing else, the photo of Virginia that exists, there is no photo of Francis, unfortunately, um, just so people can know who they are reading about. Um, the locations, I think, would be neat. Um, the way things have evolved, there really are, isn't much left 
of the places that where they lived. Um, their graves, to me, are, is, is a very touching location at uh, Bell Fountain Cemetery that I've been to several times. Um, just, it, I feel like it makes the story, it humanizes the story. It, it helps you understand that, yeah, we really are talking about real people. I mean, when I read other biographies, um, I really enjoy if there are pictures, you know, in the middle of the book or the front, wherever it is they choose to put them, right. mm-hmm. because it, it does, it gives you some context, but it also depends on what's available and also, you know, what the, the publisher chooses to include. You know, something you mentioned, the cemetery, we mentioned in the previous hour that uh, she was buried, or she is buried in uh, Bell Fountain Cemetery, and apparently across the street, Reith uh, Happerset <laughs> is, uh, is buried also, so they're s- still in yes. battle, I guess, with each other. The interesting thing is his grave is not marked. Really? Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's, I've never found out why. Um, it's pretty much underneath um, a pine tree right now. Oh, wow. Oh, really? So under the yeah. pine tree or the pine tree's on top? <laughs> uh, well, a little bit of both. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, think, I think the pine tree probably grew over it, but I don't know that for sure. Huh. Yeah, I was wow. just at an event there um, last Saturday honoring Virginia. It was a replaying ceremony that one of the local women's organizations held for the centennial um, of women's suffrage, and one of the mm-hmm. tour guides was was talking about that. Wow! Oh, wow! So, give us a little uh, bio of Virginia Minor as. We have spoken a little bit about her previously on the show about a year and a half ago, and we've also spoken about her last hour, but it was mainly about the the, the suit and uh, how that went to the Supreme Court. So we were just basically talking about the case. Just give us a little background so mm-hmm. people can understand who she is. Sure. Um, Virginia Minor was uh, from the state of Virginia, she, um, her father was a hotel keeper, that, that's the official title, at the University of Virginia. Basically, that meant he ran one of the dorms there. Um, they didn't have very much money when she was growing up. Um, her father died when she was really young. She was six. And um, that sent her family into a bunch of upheaval, but they ended up being fine. Um, she did attend um, a girls' school in Virginia. It's questionable which one. I personally think um, it was a school called Edge Hill Female Academy. So she was actually very well educated for a woman, especially of her time, um, which is interesting because so was Francis. Um, Francis is also from Virginia. They are second cousins. Um, at the time, it was very, very common uh, for cousins in that um, gentry of Virginia to marry. So, you know, it's a little taboo now, but it was, it was normal back then. Um, he actually went to, his father died when he was two, and he went to uh, both Princeton and the University of Virginia Law School. Um, it's, we don't know for sure, but it seems like the way the families worked back then, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that the two of them would marry. Um, they probably knew each other very, very well growing up um, because relationships, cousins were basically part of the family. It wasn't the nuclear family that we think of now. It was a big extended family, and they spent a lot of time together. Um, the two of them got married. They moved to Holly Springs, Virginia, and lived there for three years with one of Francis's brothers, moved to St. Louis, <clears throat> excuse me, and spent 40 years here. Um, 
during the Civil War, Virginia um, helped found the Ladies' Union Aid Society of St. Louis, which was really instrumental in um, being able to provide for the number of wounded that St. Louis treated, um, which was a disgustingly high amount. Um, Francis did not fight in the war. He actually worked as a war claims agent, which was um, someone who he was a lawyer, um, and he used those skills to help um, widows and orphans and wounded soldiers put their claims to the government for money or property reimbursement, um, because a lot of times the, the soldiers had to use their own horses, their own food, things like that, um, basically to get what was due to them during the war. After the war was over, um, there was a big tragedy in the Minor family. They, they only had one child. Their son was named Francis Gilmer Minor, so he was sort of a junior, but not exactly. Um, he was killed in an accident with a gun. Um, he was 14 years old. All, all that is known is that he was it, it misfired while he was handling it. The situation, the specifics aren't there, but he was shot in the face mm. um, and killed immediately. So that was a huge blow to the family. Um, for Virginia, the grief, and then coupled with she was so used to doing so much work during the Civil War, she needed something to do. She needed some kind of outlet. She came to find out that there were other women in St. Louis who were interested in women's suffrage as well. Um, at the time, a lot of women believed that after the Civil War, the government would give them the right to vote as a reward for the work that they did even though they couldn't fight on the fields. And with um, African-Americans getting the, the right to vote through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, they thought, okay, you know, this is where it's going to be universal suffrage. We're, we're, we're going to get this. Well, when it didn't happen, the women were very justifiably upset. And Virginia looked around and said, you know what, there's no, nothing really going on here in Missouri. You know, somebody needs to raise this. So she helped um, form the Women's Suffrage Association um, of Missouri. Um, that was in 1867. Um, and then for the next, you know, really through 1919, past Virginia's lifetime, they fought for suffrage, but not only here, um, also in other states. So Virginia, the big thing, and I'm sure this is what you talked about in the last hour, was Virginia and Francis came up with a theory that became known as the New Departure. Um, short version is that the 14th Amendment used gender-neutral gender language, um, which is basically that it was all persons, all people, all citizens, um, instead of male, men, he, him, that type of thing, um, talking about who had rights under the Constitution. And because of that, they believed, they argued, that women were already given the right to vote. They urged women over the course of, prob I think it was four or five years, to go out and exercise that right. So women were going to the polls, to the registrars across the country and saying, hey, the 14th Amendment says I have the right to vote. I am here to register to vote, or if they've gotten past that point, to actually cast my ballot. And so she did that. She was refused, which, you know, according to the law, that was the, the, the right thing. Um, it's, it's questionable whether she knew for sure she was going to be refused, and it was the whole, the whole point was the refusal, because afterwards they sued. Um, and then that, course, that case, of course, went to the Missouri courts, 
who ruled against them. It went to the Missouri Supreme Court, who ruled against them, then the United States Supreme Court, who ruled against them. Um, A lot of times when you're reading about the minors, that's where the story stops. But that really wasn't the end of the stuff that they did. Um, For them, it was like, okay, fine, this happened. We're going to go about this a different way. The, The case basically forced the women's suffrage movement to abandon the idea that there was going to be some kind of a national resolution to the idea of women getting the right to vote. So they had to go state by state. Um, Virginia did a a lot of really revolutionary things. Um, She refused. She was not the first one, um, but she was just part of a bigger tradition. She refused to pay her property taxes because um, she felt like that was taxation without representation. If she couldn't vote, then she shouldn't have to pay her taxes. Um, which was a very big statement. She fought against St. Louis had this really interesting period of time where we had social purity laws. Um, Basically, we attempted legalized prostitution, and Virginia was not having that. So she she fought against that. Um, She supported women's suffrage in general in the state. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times she sent petitions to the legislature or she went and spoke. Um, she also did that on the national level. She was an officer in the National Women's Suffrage Association, which is the one that was run by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, she actually traveled with Susan B. Anthony to, to Nebraska to um, stump for women's suffrage there. Um, very interesting story. They actually at a female lunatic asylum. That was the words that were used at the time. Um, and in, in some ways it seems strange, but it's also very appropriate because under the law at the time, women had the same amount of rights as children, as people who were considered criminals, whether they were incarcerated or not, and people who were unfortunately locked away in asylums of some sort. Very, very low levels of rights. Um, and that was one of the things that, that Virginia was fighting against. Um, she attended many conventions across the country. Um, she was very active in trying to get the German community, especially in St. Louis, because we have such a huge German community, um, on the side of suffrage. They were generally um, against it because, for the most part, the women's suffrage movement and the temperance movement went hand in hand. A lot of the Germans worked in the the brewing industry, mm-hmm. so they were naturally against the temperance movement. Therefore, they spoke out against women's suffrage as well. Um, she actually even continued, believe it or not, her fight um, after her death. She purposefully said, I do not want any clergy at my funeral, because at the time, most, not all, but most religions were against female suffrage. And then in her will, she had two um, very untraditional codicils put in. Um, One was that she gave $500 each to two of her single nieces on the condition that neither of them ever marry. So really what she was trying to do was to set them up financially um, to be independent women um, so that they never had to depend on men because the second they married, um, women gave up their rights. The, the, it, it's the system of coverature. I always want to call it coverture. It's coverature um, that basically says when a woman is born, she is covered legally by her father. When she marries, she is covered legally by her husband. That gives him the right to everything, the wages that she earns. That um, gives him the right to, you know, do whatever he wants in the marital bed, um, regardless of what she says. 
it gives him actually even the ability to uh, buy, sell, and trade her if he wanted to. He could keep her children away from her forever if he chose to. Wow. So she was trying to protect these two nieces. And then she also gave $1,000 to Susan B. Anthony to continue the women's suffrage movement. Well, uh, Nicole, can you stay over the break and we can continue this conversation? This is Arnold Strick with Mark Langston of St. Louis In Tune, recorded weekly at the studios of KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome back to St. Louis In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been having a conversation with Nicole Evelina, who is an author, and she's got a boatload of books out, folks, and you need to go to her website, and I want to uh, give that to you again, and we'll also post that. It's NicoleEvelina.com, N-I-C-O-L-E-E-V-E-L-I-N-A.com. She is an award-winning author, and she's working on a book on Virginia Minor. <coughs> Virginia Minor is a very important A person from St. Louis, a Supreme Court case, a landmark case came out of uh, St. Louis that she had uh, applied to, she didn't apply to vote, she was wanting to vote and register to vote, and she was denied. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court, a landmark case. And when we left before the break, uh, Nicole, you were talking about how near the end of her life she had willed certain things to her two nieces and some money to Susan B. Anthony. I was reading, and I may, this may be totally off on the wrong person. Did she and her husband actually put a lot of their um, their worldly possessions in a trust at the time, or was was that? Or am I getting somebody else confused with that? Um, probably what you're thinking of. Um, pretty early on in their marriage, Francis actually put all of his um, property and other materials in a trust for Virginia. What he was doing, he was a lawyer, and he was basically manipulating the loopholes in the law to be able to give Virginia greater rights than most women had at the time. Um, He actually, when they sold the house that they had in the city to move into what was the country at the time, which hilariously is now the Central West End, which is totally not what we think of, you know, as the country, um, that house that they bought and named Minoria for for their family, um, he did it in such a way that allowed Virginia to be the one to buy the property. She sold their um, city house to another woman, and then there was a third woman who was involved, and now I can't remember. I, oh, that woman sold to a third woman. Um, and basically it was all done through trusts and male representatives um, to make it all legal. But it's the first time that that was done in Missouri history, and the way everything was worded gave Virginia the ability to uh, to resell it, to um, give it away in her will to other people other than her heir, which is very unusual, even if the heir and Francis were still living. Um, those were rights that other women wouldn't get, you know, partially for another decade and for another 50 to 100 years, depending on the state. So I, I have a feeling that's what you were probably referring to. Right, right. Because a lot of states, if you had, if you owned property, that gave you the right to vote, correct? Yes. So how did, from yeah. your from your research, how did how did you or did you come across this that we talked about this previously? Some of the western states, i.e., like Wyoming and Utah, 
allowed national voting prior to the 19th Amendment, and you have states like Missouri or some in the South that were like, no way uh, are you going to do that, maybe a right. local election. What was, what was basically the difference? Was it, was it just the, the timing of where people were, or what did you find out about anything about that? Um, I do want to want to say about the property. At some point, that stopped being a qualification for voting. I do not remember the date. I wish I did, but um, so it, that depended on the time period that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, most of those western states, interestingly, well, one of the states, uh, the idea was put up as a joke, and the people actually ended up going and doing it, um, which really embarrassed the heck out of the governor. And I cannot remember which which state that was, but it was one of the western ones. Um, and in the case of Wyoming, uh, they had a ratio where there were 10 men for every woman in that area. And in order for the area to survive, much less thrive, thrive they needed to draw more women there. And they thought that um, giving women the right to vote would do that. And in addition, um, it was, I think it was the Republican Party, because for the most part, they were the ones at the time who were... Um, more for women's suffrage. It's very interesting that the Republicans and Democrats were basically backwards in philosophy of what they are now um, at that point. Hmm. They, they felt that if the women came and they were the party who had given, fought for women to have the right to vote, that women would then vote for them. So it was not an altruistic thing at all. Um, some of it had to do with um, the economy. Some of it had to do with politics. Um, and it, it worked very well for those, for those areas. Wow. In, in all the things that you were finding out about Virginia, you know, I, I, I was intrigued when you talked about after the Supreme Court case, because you're exactly right. A lot of stuff just falls off um, off the edge of the earth and you don't hear anything else. And I'm glad that you brought that up mm-hmm. because that's that kind of fills in some gaps. What are some things that you found out about her that you really didn't know that kind of surprised you? Oh, I think a lot of it was just her willingness to keep on going through so much adversity. I mean, one state after another would say no. You know, one petition after another would get shot down, and she would just keep at it. I mean, she was attending conventions up until a few months before she got sick, and what ended up being her final illness. Um, You know, you a lot of times we think in in stereotypes of the time period that when Francis died, because he died of a about two years before she did, that, you know, she would have just, you know, basically crumpled in grief and stopped, but she didn't. I mean, we have records of her traveling all over the country. Um, I, I, I feel like having had a glimpse into her personality that she was probably continuing the fight for him in addition to fighting, you know, the drive that she always had. Um, it's really interesting that Francis actually helped um, – pen a women's suffrage bill that was actually brought before Congress after his death. So he, like her, was able in some small way to continue even after he had died, you know, the fight that they basically both dedicated their lives to. Well, that's, you know, I, I really appreciate that you've you've really filled in some gaps for me, and uh, especially, again, after, after the, the court case, and someone who is has been through all the things that she's been through and all the fights and, and helping to, uh, you know, found 
the uh, Women's Suffrage Association and be involved in women's suffrage from, from the earliest points, uh, working th- uh, during and after the Civil War with what she was doing there and having the death of her son and just you know, continuing to focus on and, and the travel because I don't— th- I guess, you know, I think back and I'm like, okay, it's not like we're getting in the car and we're going or we're going to take a plane. You know, you, you really have to right. you have to have, have a focus and have arrangements made to be able to do that in time. Yeah, yeah. Um, most of it, depending on where in the country you're going, the railroads at that point, and depending on the time period, too, really after 1850, that was when the railroads really took off. Um, so they, she was probably able to, in the latter part of her life, to travel by rail a lot. Um, but prior to that, you had basically three options. You had um, the stagecoach. You had, uh, depending on where you were going, canals and rivers, or the the railroad if if it was available in your area. So I mean, it could take. I mean, traveling across the country, the fastest way was to go um, again, depending on the time period, through the Panama Canal, which is insane. I mean, it t- it took weeks upon weeks. You know, where we think of things being quickly, uh, quick, it, it was not. Well, I guess uh, one last question for you. Do you wish you could go back in time and talk to her? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I, I just, I would love to know, first of all, I'd love to know the truth, you know, of what happened and, and all the gaps that even with all my research I can't fill in. But I would just love to hear what really motivated her, because the miners didn't leave any journals. Um, they, they left a few letters. You know, we don't, we don't have that really, truly personal touch. I mean, all we can do is speculate um, in, in a lot of areas. And I, that's what I, what I would want to know, to really get to know the real person. You know, and I, I, would, I would add to that, I, maybe they were way too busy doing what they really believed to not take time mm-hmm. to write it down, but they th- thought that their life would be the indication of really what they were leaving behind. Right. Yeah, right. I would agree with that. We've been talking to Nicole Evelina, who's author of an upcoming book on Virginia Minor, and Nicole's website is NicoleEvelina.com, N-I-C-O-L-E-E-V-E-L-I-N-A.com. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this book. Uh, you know, just the fact that she is a St. Louis person, just the fact that she was really prominent in suffrage, just the fact that she really challenged the existing uh, law and interpretation of the law and was steadfast in her beliefs about what she was doing. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book in the, in the coming years. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it being out there and people getting to know her name. And I just I feel like she's she's so important in St. Louis history and and in national history, too, that that people need to know who she is. Now, when do you estimate that we can we would see the book based on the way the publishing industry works? It'll probably be about two years. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hang on. We'll hang on and we'll have you back on the show then. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh yeah, and, and maybe after oh, yeah. COVID will be done by then, and we could have you in studio. That would be That'd wonderful. Be I, I'd look forward. And to I'll that. keep blogging about her on my website, so you know there will still be information available even before the book comes out. Nicole, thanks again. Appreciate wow. it. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you.